So I'm Rosie, I'm the Opinions Editor at Junior Rowing News, and I'm here with Connie Pidu, a Cox from Thames Rowing Club. Uh, so Connie, if you'd like to introduce yourself in your own words, how long have you been rowing for? And uh, just, yeah, just start there. Yeah, so uh, I'm Connie, I've been rowing a fairly long while now. I started like a lot of people do at school, I was at King's Canterbury, um, and I actually started back in 98, so it's been a it's been a little while now. Um, and then after school, I went to Imperial, where I learnt, um, I was at Imperial a long time, where I learnt a lot about the Tideway then. And even after I finished at Imperial, I stayed on at the club um, and rode there for a number of years. Um, then I was at Moldy for a little bit and then at Thames. Um, so that's pretty much the last 22 years, roughly, of coxing. Fantastic. So you really are a Tideway expert. That's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> there's been a lot of rowing Tideway. Yeah, I'm sure there's a few rowers who will have been in a dodgy session or two who would uh, <laughs> certainly disagree with that or maybe or maybe a dodgy race or two, but I've certainly got plenty of time on the water there, yeah. Are you competing this year, this season? No, I officially retired from really competitive um, rowing in, after Henley in 19. Um, but I still cox, you know, still, uh, but a, a different level. So rather than aiming at the club Henley levels, uh, I now sort of do master stuff. So I'll be racing um, probably eights head and vets head and maybe remnant head and so on, um, but not nothing too competitive. Okay, cool. So what have you managed to, to do as a cox in the last, in the last 20 years? I suppose not, not head related, but I've won Henley twice in the last few years. So I won with Thames in, uh, 2015 and then again a couple of years later in 2018 and then lost in the final in 19 so um, quite experienced in the club events at Henley along with a, a, a handful of semis and so on and then there's a lot of what seems like second places at Foreshead. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact I think it's almost entirely second places so I've always just been just a few seconds away from that trip to the Fuller's to the Fuller's Brewery um, and then the best result was again probably with Thames um, in 16 where we came third at the head um, along with a few top 10 results but yeah that, I'd say those are probably probably the best results in a nutshell. A very impressive list of results, I have to say. Um, so obviously we're focusing on the Tideway today um, and we've got Fours Head coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Do you, did you enjoy coxing Fours over Eights or, or would, you, would you choose the other one? Uh, it, well, you know what? They have pluses and minuses. Ultimately, um, just as a cox, uh, there's nothing for me quite as exciting as an eight. Uh, there's nothing as fast there's nothing as powerful um you know when it goes right it, it's amazing to cox but there are some things about coxing fours which are far more enjoyable so um obviously you don't have the same visual as a cox in the modern cox fours when you're a bow loader um but um that means you're you're lying flat along the bottom of the boat so boat feel um which obviously you really want your cox to have rather than just looking at the visuals all the time and um, boat feel is significantly higher in a cox four you can really feel what's going on because lift 50 percent of your body is lying along the hull so you can you know you can normally once you get to know what's going on and, and the issues your crews members of individuals of your crews have you can feel what's going you can feel if someone's taking a blade out early or late or you can feel if the catches aren't going in or a someone's throwing the weight their weight around um and then occasionally with a click a quick glance back you can put two and two together and you can you know warn someone about how they're moving their body weight or you, you can feel if the hull's not moving smoothly between the finish and the catch and they need to hold their knees a bit longer and so on so um although eights for me i've won henley and eights twice um 
and I would happily win it in a Cox Ford, don't be wrong, if that was an option. <laughs> but um, eights are the way to go. But the fours are good. Fours are good fun. The other thing I find with fours is actually much easier to steer for the simple reason that you've got, you know, 200 degrees of visual before you've even turned your head around you know you can really see what's going on in front of you and you've got one stick so it's much easier to sort of get tiny movements if you're steering straight enough so um you you know between the boat feel and and the steering both of those you can you can get to a much higher standard in a four more easily i feel and that four's head is is great fun to be trying those out so do you find that um you don't feel hindered by the fact you're at bow in a four then you don't think I'm mean, obviously it has its challenges but both of them do you don't feel like you would actively choose to sit in a stern load of four for example no uh because the balance is better with the weight lower down in the boat for a start so if you if you want to get your boat running better you want to put the cocks as low down as possible so um for that simple reason I'd always choose a bow load of four and they're supposed to be quick because you don't have the same sort of um uh you know you're not getting in the way of the wind as it comes past so it, it for speed you definitely want a bow loader um you uh, yeah yes you will miss a few things that you don't see um because you can't see exactly what's going on the blade you don't see your stroke man you don't have the same communication necessarily with the crew members although you can communicate with your bow man um but uh, you know it, especially if you're training in a crew and a run up to force head rather than just jumping in for a scratch outing you know you will normally have been getting coaching the individuals will have been getting coaching hopefully you will have been in a launch occasionally maybe you can see what they're doing so you you can still contribute hugely and um, despite the fact that you can't see um you can't see the actual blade work sure so how much would you say you're therefore relying on the people behind you the four people behind you to, to communicate with you about what's going on so um, this entirely depends on who you have in your crew okay. um it's, you, it's, yeah some people you 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 don't want them to try and communicate with you because they're not going to give you anything useful and this mess themselves up sometimes you end up with people in the crew who feel the need to communicate because you're in a bow loader and if you try and get them to stop then you actually panic them so allowing them to communicate bits and bobs back and then obviously you get some who are genuinely useful to you um i'd say the biggest thing you, you've got to worry about a fool's head is obviously other crews especially when you've got this coxed four division then coxless and cox and they're trying to get the speeds right about the order of who they send off and you know, to be fair to the organisers of Force Head, there is no perfect solution because the fastest in one division will be much faster than the slowest in that division. Therefore, if you put them above, say, uh, I don't know, junior quads, the junior quads are going to massively overtake the people at the back and not the people at the front. You put them the other way around, you've got the same problem. So there is no way of getting you know the lineup speed oriented as you can in the eights heads and so on um which means that you do need to know if someone's coming up behind you you do have to have that communication that would um, be my next question would, would be yeah. how much do you rely on them to, to tell you when someone's coming up towards you how quickly they're coming up towards you it yeah it's fairly important um obviously you don't want to rely too heavily on them having to speak very much but you just don't want them to have to go there's a four coming up on your stroke side they'll be you know they just need yeah. to go four bow side yeah, or yeah. stroke side or or and again maybe the four you know it's something you want to perhaps have had a conversation with your bow man about about what you need from him or her sorry um so you, so you would say that a key thing would be then before you go into force head for the people out there coxing mm-hmm. communication with the crew and on like setting boundaries about what you want from them what you want them to say and that kind of thing is, is really positive is a really positive thing yeah absolutely 
Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, again, if you've done a few weeks of training in your certain crew or even just a week, I know false head crews can often be thrown together last minute because it's so early in the season. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you just have a few sessions, you kind of uh, you start to understand who likes to pipe up and who doesn't. Um, and just kind of really want to work with the individuals in your boat. Um, you know, likewise, if you have a race plan, obviously, the benefit of having a cox is that you've got someone who can remember the race plan, whereas the rowers often, you know, start zoning out and struggle to remember the details. Um, but, you know, you might come through on a Hammersmith bridge and the plan might be to do a kick off the bridge or something. And it, it might be a bad time or something. So you do want to have it so they can communicate something back if they feel they need to. Um, but it needs to be super simple and it needs to be one or two words, almost definitely from your bowman because you really can't hear much from the other end of the boat. Yeah, especially on the tideway. <laughs> you lose a lot. Um, how would you, how, have you ever had to cope on the tideway, um, even at a fourth head or even eight's head, with a boat that doesn't steer very effectively? A hull that doesn't steer effect. You mean the actual boat I'm in, yeah. not just not just the other people around me. <laughs> no, no, just the boats. We'll get to other people maybe maybe later. <laughs> um, you know what? This is a really good question. I haven't in races. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, maybe when I was a junior, but you, when I was first starting, I was a bit clueless. So I might not have, you know, noticed. I might have just assumed it was me. And <laughs> um, it's really important. I, I find the number of times, especially when I was competing against other coxes and you're rotated through boats you get in a hull and the steering's loose or you know it, it's not reacting or the handles aren't set straight or, or you know especially in a cox four the rudder bar I don't I'm gonna get too technical but the, oh. the rudder you got the you got the column and then you got the rudder bar that goes across and it's 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 held together so it spins with it with each other by a little uh diamond shape mm -hmm. and at the top or a, a, a square at the top and often it starts twisting and so the diamond shape loses its edges and starts going rounder and then what you have is some movement on the rudder um, some movement on the rudder bar so you're trying to steer and it doesn't get picked up until you've moved it quite away so all your actual like delicate steering or little movements that you want to do a lot on the tideway isn't being translated down to the to the rudder um so i mean the biggest thing i can say is to any cox is you, you don't want to get obsessive about it um it's easy to start tweaking all little bits you don't want to worry your crew about it but check it if your rudder strings are loose tighten them or ask your boatman or your coach or ask if you can do it or can they help you do it if you don't know how to do it um and just make sure that it it's as tight as can be so you can still move it but make sure it's accurate you know if you move your rudder bar a few millimeters you want your rudder to move a few millimeters mm -hmm. and so on and take responsibility you wouldn't expect a rower to get in a boat and not be able to do up their their gate and just row like that you know it's the same thing just because the coxes rotate through these boats um, doesn't mean that it's not your performance that's being reflected when you get in. So you need to, you need to check it before. So I, I'd like to answer your question directly, I've never really had it during a race where my piece of equipment's gone wrong. Um, I don't think. I might have had a rudder string go, but I can't remember. Um, but you just check your equipment. And it's really, you know, if it breaks, it breaks. It's not your fault. But if it's not right, it's your fault because you knew you were in that hull. You should check the boat over before you race in it. Yeah. Have you, how much would you, how much do you rely on the rowers to help you steer um, on the tideway, especially during the races? Not at all. Never. I mean, if something goes wrong, um, no, you know what, that's, un that's unfair. In a perfect race, never. You know, there aren't, this isn't the head of the Charles, there's no sort of, 100 degree bend or 120 whatever it's had you know you don't you don't have to suddenly swing this boat around and while you're almost always constantly adjusting on the rudder t 
tiny bits it should it shouldn't be like you know where you steer and you feel it in the boat you should be able to do such small amounts of steering just to keep yourself tapped in the stream there are no real tight bends on the tideway it's just big sweeping bends and it's about picking your line in the right place um therefore at no point unless you end up in a sort of emergency situation um at no point should you need to ask them now that doesn't mean that if you get in a situation and something's wrong you don't because you don't think you should be you know if you if you need to correct something then absolutely correct it and don't stick it out you know because you could easily waste 10 to 15 seconds on the tideway but on 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 this course no you wouldn't you shouldn't need to interesting okay and then just going back a little bit how do you how have you coped with other people racing on the tideway have you ever had any situations where you've had to do some radical moves shall we say because of other people around you well I've had w- one well, I've had, yes yes I've definitely had a few um normally people you know try and do their best and kind of get out of the way I've had a few people who are quite cheeky mm-hmm. in 15 um when I just joined Thames and made the first boat we came top 10 which we were very happy with um it was basically the same crew that went on to win Henley so it was quite it was quite near we were very excited to race and it was just one of those good years and they had a I think it was a Swiss crew in front who two years before because 14 we cancelled then 13 he'd raced against a different cops at the time and had been caught up by the 10 crew and refused to move like flat out refused to move um, and he, we, we basically, had, they, they did the same lineup because 14 been cancelled. They did the same lineup and we end up behind them again. Mm. Um, and again, he sort of refused to move, but we kind of knew it was going to happen. So I, but I just about had the line I wanted, give or take. I mean, I, I perfectly, I would have been slightly one way or the other. Um, but we were prepared for that. But it's difficult because it's all very well being in the right. You know, you can come down, get off the course, you can get them a time penalty. But yeah. if you end up, causing your crew five to ten seconds you're not going to get that back by getting someone else a time penalty so you can be in the right as much as you want um, but at the end of the day you want to get your boat down as fast as possible um, I do tend to find I have been quite leery with the other coxes sometimes if you start okay. further back you know if you start um, you know anywhere past 50 backwards you get a huge variation in speed yeah. And obviously you want to be polite. Um, and often you get coxes who are either trying to be cheeky or they don't know what they're doing, um, you know, as accurately or they're not sure where the noise comes from, at which point, you know, I normally get, obviously you don't swear, but you do get quite angry with them and you throw the word out like disqualification and talking to you know and you want to obviously prep your crew for that because that's quite disruptive for your crew as well as their crew but it does tend to have the best impact um but I did I did have one situation fortunately it wasn't it wasn't a hugely important race it was the day after eight's head we raced vet's head in, in an eight and I was going along and it didn't occur to me that vet's head is full of lots of foreigners that so they love to come over and race on the course but a, you know a, a race that is just traditionally a bit slower and so on and I had a foreign crew I can't remember where they're from in front of me and we we caught them up a few hundred meters off the start line and I was shouting and I was shouting and I just believed they'd move out the way because I was being so aggressive yeah. and then my crew till berate me for it now I literally called a single stroke in the middle of a race I was like pausing at the finish now and they all behaved exactly they all sat there in the middle yeah. of a race well I just put the rudder on and kind of steered out and then we went off again yeah. um so I clearly I mean it, it didn't matter because we won our pennant which was lucky but I clearly cost my crew 
I don't know, easing for a stretch. You could uh, five to seven seconds, maybe, maybe less. But I clearly cost my crew some time. I didn't actually report the other crew, but, but it would have made no difference to us. So I should have realised that they weren't moving and steered round to avoid that. How do you cope with uh, the pressure then of you're sitting at the start line, you're you're sat in the hull of this four. Do you find that you have to stay really calm or do you find that the, actually the pressure is, is you find it really helpful in those situations? Well, the first thing in the Cox four um, is that you tend not to go off very high in, mm-hmm. um, you know, you tend to cover, so they send off all the quads and all the coxless, which is absolutely the right thing. Some of the juniors, absolutely the right thing to do. Um, so even if you're racing sort of championship cox four, um, which very few crews do, um, y- you tend to be waiting on the water quite a long time. Yeah. So, and you're worrying about, you know, keeping your boat straight and making sure your boys are hydrated or girls are hydrated and making sure you're warm enough, you know, and pretty much you stay as warm as you can. And then at some point you realize you're not warm anymore. And that's, that's just how you have to deal with it. So there's actually quite a lot going on at the time that you tend not to, tend not to you get that stressed until, you know, until, so not until you start taking your kit off and you start turning. Yeah. Um, but race days for me, and I, I, you know, occasionally I used to get really nervous and I think some nerves is good, you know, as, as it is in, in everything, because you have the adrenaline and you stay a bit sharp as long as it doesn't start affecting, you know, what you're saying, what's coming out of your mouth. And as long as you're staying clear in your head, a bit of nerves, you know, feeling that flutter is a really good thing I find as a cox. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that I find helps me most is just remembering that I love doing this. Like I want to be on this river, um, especially, you know, you get some, you, know, you get some horrible ones, you get some beautiful head days and, you know, the sun comes out and it's quite crisp and cold and everyone's having a bit of a chat, you know, been waiting an hour or two around with the other guys around you and the other crews. Yeah. And you're just like, this is it. So I want to do, and you spin, especially in the Cox you sort of spin and you facing straight on, you know, you've got that run up coming onto Chiswick bridge. You just got to think though, like there's, there's nowhere else in the world right now. I'd rather be, this is, I chose to be here and I'm absolutely, loving the fact that I get to race like this is yeah. you know especially now that I'm retired from um as competitive coxing as I was doing before I I miss that you know the, the excitement mm-hmm. and the, the privilege of being able to do these sorts of races and these sorts yeah. of crews um is something that I really hang on to when the nerves come in because then I can just enjoy it rather than have the nerves take over yeah what kind of things would you be telling your crew before you get on the water bear in mind often at Force Head Nate's Head there is a long wait do you would you bother what would you bother would you would you go out with a big speech or would you kind of wait until the five minutes before the race starts to get all psyched up because of the weight yeah so it partly depends I'm not answering your question directly it partly depends on your coach and how they operate so um you know you get some coaches that don't really give a chat and you get other coaches to give a big chat so you don't want to be doing something that's just sort of a repeat of what they do so try and understand kind of what your coach is going to do first um um normally what I do before I get on the water again especially at Falls Head we have a long wait normally I just run through the race plan like really clear really to the point maybe a little bit aggressively you know a little bit of urgency in it so you hope that they kind of switch into what's going on and you know they get a little bit of a little bit of adrenaline going around and they're thinking about it and they're really focused and you know you run through you like okay we come through the start and we're going to do we're going to wind it up like here and we'll hold it up for 10 strokes then we'll do a hold over the knee you know you kind of run through it um a little bit aggressively a little bit with um urgency in your voice but it's not kind of it's not like you're going out for a 2k race and they've got you know they've got to go in like 20 minutes right you don't want them to lose a whole lot of a whole lot of nervous energy um i've always found for head races 
I tend to calm a little bit more. I tend to sort of like lower my voice, especially as a girl. I find that, um, especially guys, but all people listen to lower voices a little better so I automatically lower my voice quite a lot when I'm coxing or when I'm communicating to them um, and then I stay really calm you know we're racing or we're doing maybe on the burst you get your heart you know you get a bit of volume up and then straight away after it's like good well done all right let's calm it down and then you you know you you tell them you I kind of keep a bit of a dialogue going you know you don't want to talk continuously be like okay guys you can cross over here we've got about 20 minutes till the start of the race we should be in place in 10 you know so it's kind of it's not so so much is boring but it's super calm you know it's just really it's really kind of low-key it's really making them feel like you've got control of the situation and that you know what's going on or even if you don't it's like oh I say you forget which side you're supposed to be rowing on or something okay we're just coming up to the crossover guys I'm not quite sure which side we should be marshalling I'm just going to check you know it's a kind of just an ongoing so it's like even if you're in the wrong you're not sure what you're doing you have control of that as well you know you're going to sort it out this is the problem this is the solution um and I wouldn't not until you know like people start taking the kit off and I tend to do a bit of a countdown I'm like okay well this guy's on the other side you know because that's that division then your division or like they've all started turning or they've got their kit off so you kind of start getting a little countdown and you say okay um, we're probably going to go in the next five minutes let's be ready to take your kit off and then by the time you sort of counted it down okay they started taking their kit off we'll be told to in a few minutes or they started turning at the beginning of the division make sure your kit's off let me know then it can kind of kind of start ramping up you still got two three minutes that's plenty of time to get them all you know excited for the start of the race but it's also such a long race you do, you know you don't want to get them so pumped up that they go off sure. you know off the start line have to go <laughs> yeah. absolutely racing up to Barnes Bridge and then you have the bit between yeah. the crossover where they're slogging away and then it's just a, a grind home can be can't it how so because well so the the race is obviously very long hmm. is it seven thousand meters give or take roughly? yeah 6.7 maybe yeah but yeah basically 7k how what kind of calls are you making throughout the race? Do you do you do you stay do you stay kind of like up at like ten for yourself the whole way, or do you kind of build it up towards the finish as, as you're coming in to, to the finish? I, you like you say yes, you yes go off with some gumption, you know, really go off with you know some aggression, some excitement, you know, they want you want to you go across the start line, especially if you've got a few more divisions left. You get some cheers from your crewmate, from your from your clubmates, and that's great. And you want to have that high. You don't want to go off so so chilled that it feels like a training piece. You know, go off, and then you get yourself settled into a rhythm. Um, and then I just I tend to yo-yo between sort of. Um, you, do, you, you give some information a bit lower and a bit calmer, like, okay, guys, we're 700 metres into the race. We're halfway round to, to Barnes. We just need to make sure we've got a nice sustainable rhythm. Now, you know, so you can feed that information in, but say you're doing, you know, you might be coming up to Barnes, you know, you've got a harden off Barnes or something. You'd be like, okay, let's get ready. It's coming five straight. You can get it all excited again and yo-yo and a bit. Um, and then, yeah, obviously, as you come round, how we traditionally did it, at Thames and there's a different head coach now so hopefully I'm not giving away any anything that the new head coach is doing yeah. um but it was always about getting off the start nice and aggressively then finding a rhythm not um just losing all of your energy and tiring yourself out in the first half of the race you find a rhythm and then you keep it aggressive and on the line and sustainable until Hammersmith and then you start emptying the tank yeah. whereas you see a lot of these crews and they like to go off and obviously they're very excited they go off and they go to Barnes they feel really good you know they've done the first 1.2k 
and then they use it all and then it, it's just a nightmare so if you if you get it right then you can really start picking it up from hammersmith because it's only 2k to two and a half k 2k to go by then um and then yeah coming into the finish line it's just keep it clear keep the volume going um they're not listening to much by that point or they certainly won't remember much of what you say so you just need it needs to be super clean you know like finish off the stroke sitting up the lift stuff like that so probably clearer louder and less almost as you come into the finish line if you want some responses yeah and then on on the more technical side um Mm -hmm. how difficult is it to find the rights just to get into the stream to get into the current on the tideway on those race days I think a lot of it's about how you know you, you want to line up perfectly for that bridge and obviously there's wherever you're coming on to there's a bend before you get through to Chiswick Bridge so ideally you'd get right and then you'd steer a nice bend coming up Chiswick Bridge the good thing about it unless you're starting really close to the bridge is if you spin you know you have to kind of pull yourself out yeah. to the stream then it'll start turning you and you don't want to just spin on the spot or you'll end up staying in the bank and so on if you find you've got that wrong in the run up to the bridge there's quite a lot of space especially in a Coxfall to realign yourself back on so if you know if you come out and you're already and your boys are girls sorry your guys are pumped you know everyone's in their racing kit and you've got 500 meters and lots of crews and all this kind of stuff and you spin you're like oh no I'm in the wrong place yeah. you've got so much time to line yourself up between there and the bridge and in a four as well you know it's far more agile so you can even say we're a little off the line guys I'm just going to bang the rudder on it's going to throw the bat you know just let it's one of those things again don't don't spin out and go oh, I'm in the wrong place then panic and not tell the guy you just say oh sorry guys I spun a little bit wide here I spun a bit bit tight to the bank we're just going to put the rudder on for the first 15 20 strokes yeah. you know just inform them they don't they're not going to care if you've noticed it you rectify it you tell them you're doing it and they go off on the line you know it's yeah. you know just keep them informed and you've got time to sort it out so for somebody who this let's say it's their first time coxing on the tideway, maybe their first falls head as well, well, their first falls head, what would be the key advice for prepping for race day? You know, studying the course, understanding the bends and the turns. Would you say it's really, really important for this race? Yeah, I think so. Um, For prepping for the steering, yeah, I mean... I still, I mean, as I said, I've been coxing. My first race on the river was in 99. I did what was back then the school's head short course before they moved the junior juniors out to Mm -hmm. Dorney. Um, And I, but I still study it now. Every time I race, I have a quick look at the map and I read um, the rules all the way through, even if they haven't changed just uh, every race I do um you just because you don't want to end up 10 seconds the wrong side of a penalty because you forgot something um all the rules might have changed I force head they have a couple of times changed with the steering and then got back to how they were um so just read all the paperwork's all the way always the way I like to do it then then you know you're covered and then make a few notes and so on um there used to be and I don't know if they still get it out there used to be a video called steering the tideway which I think was put together in like the late 80s early 90s it's got sort of really dated music and kind of like um like block shapes going across it was it was run by I can't remember her surname I have her first name Susie and she used to be a boat race cox Mm-hmm. and she's the one that reads it and I used to watch that on repeat I think it's very slightly out as far as exactly where the stream is now because the stream has changed but it's really helpful because it's so it shows you sitting on the tideway it like leads you round the course mm-hmm. so I used to find that really helpful especially when I was a junior I'd watch that before school yeah and I can it- imagine it feels must feel quite daunting um sitting at the start knowing you've got this quite 
I think for some people, well, for, I would say quite a complicated cause. It can be quite complicated. Yeah. So I think lots of people are, are anxious about how, how that feels and, and just kind of like, but you, you're right, just staying calm, doing the prep, all those things pay off. On the the other thing I did, and I know some people like to take bits of paper or laminate sheets yeah. and stuff um, in the boat with them. I never really got on with that because it gave me one more thing I had to hold. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's already like, you know, bottles of water and kit and you're already lying down in what's normally by that point a puddle of water and so on. So, but some, some people that works really well for me, but something I still do if I go to a course that I don't know is I, I draw it on my hand. Um, so you obviously don't want to be getting that out on a cold day until race time, which point yeah. you put the glove off. But I've just really found it useful when I've gone to courses that either I've only raced a couple of times over the last few decades or I've never raced. Um, and I'll have it'll just be the shape of the course. Yeah. And then normally if there are any bridges and, you know, maybe some start finish or any kind of, um, you know, landmark distances, maybe that correlate just to, to break the course up or might correlate to your race plan that you have with your crew. Um, and it, it just it's just a little visual you know because you can be really taken up halfway through a race and if you don't know the course that well or you don't train on the tideway um, it, your crew are unlikely to as well so being able to feed back to them where you are or look at it and know that you want to steer here next and so on it doesn't have to be a lot of detail if you kind of know the detail you just need the visual to be able to go okay there I am this is coming up okay there I am this is coming up and I found my um my hand map invaluable at me, like at many points just literally just the biro draw it on make sure I'm happy with what I'm looking at okay but that's yeah that's a great tip so I've just got a few questions from our we had we did a call out on our Instagram for questions for you okay. um just for people who are cops to the tie for the first time that kind of thing sure um one of the questions was, uh, do you call distances throughout the race and how much do you worry about them being accurate? That question came up a few times. Um, I'm only smiling because my actual distance gauge has never been great. I'm a great <laughs> one calling 500 when it's two or 100 when it's four. Yeah. Um, so if I don't know, I'm right. I I might estimate, but it's really rough. Um, other people have much better distance gauges than I do. Um, so I tend not to call something unless I'm happy about it. On the tideway, again, I wouldn't necessarily call distances purely because the crews I'm racing with have trained on the tideway and normally know it really well. So they know where they are. However, if I was a visiting Cox and, you know, I'd maybe done a practice outing or maybe not, um, I would definitely call distances, um, especially because you can know they're accurate. And I have a, a number of times now gone through, you get Google Maps and you can literally get the measure the distance and do a little bit at a time. And so I know it's a bit nerdy. Um, very nerdy um, but then I know exactly what I'm doing like I know that and maybe someone's going to disagree with me here but I know that say Chiswick is uh, Chiswick to Barnes is 1.2 kilometers you know and I know, then I know the bit between there and the crossover and and, and how long the Ayat is and then you know St Paul's is is 3k home Hammersmith is 2k home Harrods is uh, talking rubbish no ignore me if you don't know the tideway ignore that <laughs> Paul's is about three Hammersmith yeah. is two and a half Harrods is two and little things like that so I, I'd say for this course if you have guys in the boat who don't necessarily know the course that well they may have looked at it they may have talked it in a race plan they are not going to remember how far Harrods is from home when they're when they're in the midst of a race and they've been going for you know 15 minutes by that point yeah. I would definitely tell them the distances but there's no reason you can't have it measured out beforehand and there's no reason you can't have it on hand map. So, yeah. you know, there's your case going, okay, I think they need to know where they are. Great. 1500, you know, that then I would certainly do that. 
do you also focus on uh, how much you focus on the splits? I don't know you have a course that has those splits on it. How much is that important to you? Because I, and correct my wrong, I know that, that sometimes if you're in a current or a stream, the splits can be a bit all over the place sometimes. Yeah, so the splits vary hugely on the tideway, obviously depending on which way you're going and where you are in the stream. So if you're, go, if you're paddling up to the start against the stream, you know, 2.30, 2.40 splits are likely. If you're going with the stream, 1.30 splits are likely. Um, and I, I would discourage using splits if you don't know the tideway. So, you know, when I'm training on the river and I'm looking at splits and I'm going with the stream or against the stream, I kind of know that in this particular area, the river will get slightly wider. So the stream will go slower. So a split of 130, say, is a good time. Whereas if we were going somewhere else where it's narrower and it's faster, then that's too slow. Uh, but I wouldn't personally use the splits that much um, unless it's sort of relative for a push or something. So if I'm going along and I'm doing, okay, you know, say we're taking it into the finish line or, or we've got a big push off Hammersmith or something, I might be like, okay, guys, let's knock one more split off. And then I see it go from 130 to 129. So I'd be like, yeah, you've gone 129. But I wouldn't personally use it on the tideway with such a big stream for much of a gauge. I don't. I think you could end up throwing really unhelpful numbers out there if you for example if you come after the crossover it widens a lot so the speeds get down but you might be going faster and relaying to the crew that you're going five or ten splits slower isn't going to be of any use to them demoralized kind of be demoralizing us yeah that would be it feels so good um quite a few people were interested in and i don't want you to give away all of your secrets but what <laughs> kind of motivational calls for that kind of halfway point on the tideway did you find the most effective what I actually find most effective is working off other crews if you're in a position to do that. Um, sometimes you end up in a bubble by yourself, in which case it's not something you can do. But you can use crews both slower and faster um, to to work off. Um, obviously, slower ones are far simpler. You know, you get you say... Again, if you can get your distances right, you say 400 metres off, 200 metres off. So now we're level and then you can work your way through the crew. You know, I'm sitting on the stroke man, I'm sitting on the two man. And that's really good for your crew. That really boosts them. You know, they feel like they're getting somewhere um, and they know they've knocked that crew off. So I find that is something that really gets them going. But I've done the same with a crew that's faster than us. So I was racing um, with the Molsey women years ago. 2014 I think and they had the French so we were a new entry so that because they put us in around the 70s and then they also had the French national squad um they had their eight who I think went off four or five places behind us so we knew they were going to be quicker and we knew we were likely to see them um so when we did see them and they started coming off I was like right let's hold on to them so we just used it and so there was no sort of downside and you know you can do this with any crew they don't have to be a national crew you can do this with any crew that doesn't have to be a downside to the fact that you're going to be overtaken like you know that some people are going to be quicker and some people are going to be slower and rather than being like oh oh we're being overtaken use them you know you don't want to do five big strokes and then dive be like, okay let's harden let's do a technical focus let's push the legs down a little harder or let's send the finishes a little longer or something see if we can hang on to them great great you just lost one seat in the last 20 strokes well done you know it's that kind of thing and just keep them mentally in the game great okay so my last question um is basically just if you have one tip for anybody who's going to go sit on the tideway in two or three weeks time what would mm. be your biggest tip or trick for, for those coxes 
sorry it's a hard question I should right this one yeah I mean obviously there's obviously the stuff like when you're marshalling and so on keep your bowels tucked in and you know that kind of thing just to make sure you don't drift just be really aware of where you are all the time um but for me especially in the Coxfalls, especially when you start sort of going off in the last hundreds and so on which yeah. you often do in the slowest slowest um boat classes um is to stay warm <laughs> stay warm and to stay warm as a cox you need to stay dry that yeah. and that's the biggest thing so you can get away I'm not if you don't have to get get away with anything but you can get away with less kit if you're dry so the first thing that makes a massive difference to me is if my feet are wet if my feet are wet it's it's pretty much game over for me it's, yeah. it's, and I used to back in the day for the the nice kit coming I used to wear like um a plastic bag a Sainsbury bag on each foot and then wrap my feet up and walk around looking like a bag lady but now waterproof socks for me they revolutionize my coxing um even I so I get in the boat I take my wellies off especially if I'm the cox four and I have my waterproof socks on often you want to dump the wellies out of the boat anyway because you don't necessarily want the extra weight um but your feet are not cold as they stay really cold in wellies so the sooner you get your wellies off the better that you can put warm socks underneath warm waterproof socks on top and then if you can afford some sailing salopettes that you know the baby grow stuff that comes all the way up to your chest yeah and if you end up lying in water which Gosh, 99 out of 100 boxes, yeah. yeah um then straight away you don't have you know that the, the seepage into the pants of you know you know at some point the water from the feet is going to meet the water from the pat you know all that kind of stuff yeah. so salopettes and water resorts. i know that's not a very um sexy exciting answer <laughs> no it's i was always told whenever we did the tide way don't worry about the extra weight just wear as much as you can and stay as dry as you can because the weight can be catastrophic yeah. but it's also exciting. It's a, it's a fantastic event. And every year, I think everyone looks forward to it. Um, okay, so that's that's great. Thank you very much, Connie, um, for your that's time. Cool. Thanks for speaking. Um, I'm just going to say, yeah, thank you very much.